Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. James 4, 1 to 12, page 855 or 898, I believe, of the Pew Bible. If you need one, back in, it's right in the back of the pew in front of you there, 855 or 898, depending on which printing of that you have. But we're coming back to this passage for part two. I did part one last week. And so since last week, I have traveled on the interstate a couple of times, and I was reminded of an important safety feature on the highway. Uh, as I was driving along, my truck sort of uh, hiccuped and got a little warning message or whatever, and so I, I pulled off onto the shoulder of the highway just to sort of assess that or whatever. And as I did, I looked in my rear view mirror and um, the very next vehicle behind me, which is a little ways back, a pickup truck, I think, and it actually started kind of veering off of the road and uh, just barely and sort of quickly corrected course, got back on, you know, went on its way. But um, I, I don't need even that to know. I don't want to be sitting in my car on the side of the interstate. And so I just uh, cranked it back up, pulled up about a mile to a rest stop you know, um, and it was kind of a sort of a fluke passing thing and, and ended up just going on about my trip. But anyway, I, I realized that almost certainly what prevented that truck from swerving farther off course was the rumble strips. And uh, you know, most of you know anyway, there's grooves and ridges along the side of the highway. They, they go all the way up the highway. Um, as far as I've ever traveled anyway on the, on the interstate. And whenever a vehicle passes over them, it makes a rather alarming sound, doesn't it? And they're designed to alert a driver immediately that they've crossed outside the lines so that they can adjust quickly and avoid an accident, either going off of the highway and you know doing, having a rollover accident as they go uh, closer to the ditch, or... Uh, what's maybe even worse is going off and hitting a stationary object like a stopped car or something like that. And so they're designed to alert a driver immediately uh, by that rumble. And the rumble may need to awaken a driver who has fallen asleep, or it may need to just regain the attention of a driver who's distracted. But it is jarring and alarming when you drive over that. It's a warning. And the driver is always thankful to have been warned. Right? Always thankful to have been warned when you hear that. And so in our spiritual walk, in the times when we get distracted or sleepy spiritually and begin to drift off course, James has a warning for us. And it is too jarring and alarming in our ears. Uh, but we ought always to be thankful for the warning as well. It's a warning against worldliness. And as you've seen on your bulletin, perhaps that's the title of this morning's message. It's in James chapter four, verses one to 12. Again, let's look there together now. And if you're able, I'm gonna ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse one, read now the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray together. Well, Father, as always, we're grateful for the scriptures Because while they have been penned by men, they are inspired by your spirit. They are truth and life to those who have ears to hear. And Lord, you know that we need to hear what's in them. You know all of the needs of our hearts. You know the condition of our hearts in relationship to you and to other people. And you know, Lord, how this word needs to penetrate and change, convict and challenge. And so, Lord, whatever that array of needs is, we ask ask that you'd minister to those by your spirit. So speak, Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Last week, we focused on the first three verses of this uh, chapter or this passage. My message was, was called, Why Christians Squabble. And we're reminded that our quarrels and fights uh, are caused by what's in us, not what's in the other guy. It's not somebody else who is the cause of our quarrels. It's, it's what's in me and what's in you our own desire for pleasure, we saw, is the engine that really drives us along and, and that selfish ambition and jealousy are the fuel in that engine. And that kind of served in just the first three verses as a, the initial exposure to our worldliness. And, and as James goes on, he emphasizes the seriousness and danger of that worldliness. And he offers here a warning and a remedy. And so I want to take it under those headings and let's consider first the warning that he issues. And the essence of that, the essence of the warning is that in our pride and worldliness, we make ourselves enemies of God. Look in verse four. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Throughout the New Testament, the word world is used in a variety of ways, which you may be aware of. Sometimes it refers to the physical world, the physical creation, sometimes the people in the world. And elsewhere, as here, it refers to a, a system of life in this world, a system that's opposed to God fundamentally, that, that, that has its own values and priorities and mindsets of an ungodly world. And so in, in 1 John 2, 16, it's summed up as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life or pride in possessions. John says everything that's in the world, the world system is summed up in those things. So James here doesn't mean, when he says, uh, warns us against friendship with the world, that doesn't mean that followers of Christ should not befriend non-Christians. That's not the point at all. But it means that we cannot love God while also loving a system that's opposed to God. Loving a value system, a way of thinking about life, a way of prioritizing things that's, that's in opposition to what God has revealed. To do so amounts to spiritual adultery, he says here. Unfaithfulness to the God whose faithfulness is immeasurably great, as they were just singing about. It's, it's spiritual adultery, and, the, and it says worldliness makes us enemies of God. And then in verse 6, in the middle of verse six, it goes on to make this brief but really significant connection with worldliness. He says there that God opposes the proud. So, so he who wishes to be uh, a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God and further, God opposes the proud. There's a connection between pride and worldliness. And those two join the, the, the selfish ambition and, um, and, and, and bitter jealousy that we read about last week to sort of make this, this band of outlaws living within us. Jealousy, selfish ambition, worldliness, and pride. This band of outlaws just, just living within us, always, always seeking to stir up trouble in us, always uh, seeking to draw us into the worst about ourselves, always seeking to draw us away from God. We've got this war within us and pride and worldliness are right at the middle of that war all the time. And we need to be jarred and alarmed by this language that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. And the reason that ought to be so alarming is because there's nobody in here who doesn't have an issue with pride at one time or another. In fact, if you think you don't, well, aren't you proud? You know what I mean? It's like, man, it just, it, it gets us at every turn. And see, the proud man very often thinks he's good with God. Like he doesn't think of himself as not being submitted to God. His problem is with everybody else. But he thinks he's, 
He thinks he's in good shape with God. He's obedient toward him. He's submitted to him. But toward other people, um, you know, he thinks he's right, superior, uh, smarter, more powerful, better in some regard. I mean, the, 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 there's, there's that posture toward other people, but he thinks he's really not opposed to God. But James said God is opposed to him. And partly because the Bible doesn't let us off like that in, in, in our relationship to other people, does it? The Bible, if we're submitted to God then we, and we listen to what God commands of us with respect to other people, he says, the Bible says things like, love one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, confess your sins to one another. You know, sometimes we have a hard time even saying, I'm sorry to one another, much less be, like being really honest about our sins and shortcomings, but that's part of what God commands of us. A proud person exalts himself and refuses to do those things except on his own terms. And so he, he might love one another, but uh, uh, only if one another will love him first, right? He might forgive if you forgive first. He might submit, but you got to submit a little bit more, etc. on his own terms. That's the, that's the heart of a proud man and in, or woman, by the way, I'm speaking of uh, man generically. Don't anybody think, you know, you're off the, off the hook there. <laughs> but see, in, in that posture toward other people, he, he sets himself in opposition to God, refusing to live the way the Lord has commanded. You know, when the king's subject enters the throne room, there is only one king in the room. Everybody else in the room, even if it were one person or a hundred, everybody else in the room is a subject. And the reason they're called subjects is because they subject themselves to the king's authority or they are subjected by force to the king's authority. But see, the proud person is like, you, you, can, you can picture maybe the, the nobleman, the lord in the kingdom somewhere who comes himself from a prominent wealthy family, thinks in different, under different circumstances, he could have been king. He should have been king. He would have made a better king, he, think, he thinks. And so he can't bring himself to bow to the king. And even if somebody tries to encourage his head to bow to the king, he stiffens his neck because he just can't do it. 
But anybody in the kingdom who's not a subject of the king is an enemy of the king. And if he will not bow his head, he will lose his head. God opposes the proud. Monica shared a quote uh, this week from R.C. Sproul that she had uh, run across in reading an article who said, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God but believe in the sovereignty of man. They would say God is king but stiffen their neck when it comes to bowing in every respect that he commands we bow. There's a, was an English uh, minister back in the mid 1600s named William Gurnall, wrote a book, a uh, series of books actually called The Christian in Complete Armor. And uh, there were, he, he just said some rich and profound things about a lot of things, but particularly this morning, uh, pride and worldliness. And so I just wanna read some quotes from him that get at uh, the severity of the issue and the pervasiveness, as I said, that it's, it's everywhere we look in ourselves. Always there, the, 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 the outlaw, always ready to stir up something within us. And he says, it is hard starving the sin of pride. It can live on almost anything. You know, I'll say this, not, this is not a quote by William Gurnall, but it's like a goat, you know, that'll eat anything, right? You put the goat inside a pen, it doesn't matter what's inside the pen, he'll eat it. And then he'll eat the pen, you know? <laughs> But pride, pride can live on almost anything, nothing so base that a proud heart will not be lifted up with and nothing so sacred that pride won't profane it. He says that includes our, our own righteousness. He says, never are you less holy than when puffed up with the conceit of it. That is, never are you less holy than when you're puffed up thinking about how holy you are. And even in ministry, so far as pride prevails, he says, the man prays and preaches rather to be thought good by others, rather to enthrone himself than Christ in the opinions and hearts of his hearers. That even a preacher, really, can preach to be thought of as a good preacher rather than to point people to a good Lord and Savior. And again, in relationship to other people, a proud room has not room enough to walk in company because the gifts of others, he thinks, stands in his way. You can't bear for somebody else's gifts to be celebrated if that somehow casts a shadow on my own. Because the proud person doesn't mind if somebody else gets some honor or acknowledgement just as long as he gets more. (laughs) 
God resists the proud, Gurnall points out. The humble man may have Satan at his right hand to oppose him, but be sure the proud man shall find God himself to resist him. We must either lay aside self or God will lay us aside. And, and this warning, <laughs> this warning ought to be alarming. When we hear the rumble of the rumble strips when we wander outside, that we are wandering into territory where God opposes us and that we make ourselves his enemy. Well, thanks be to God, there is a remedy. And it's summed up right in the first part of verse six. Look there. But he gives more grace. Thank you, Lord, for good news. But to whom does he give it? He gives grace to the humble. Humility is the only way we can enter into grace because it's impossible to have a repentant heart and a proud heart at the same time. Are you aware of that? It's impossible to have a repentant heart and a proud heart at the same time. Again, Gurnall says, a proud sinner and a humble savior will never agree. The gate into Christ's school is low and these, meaning the proud, cannot stoop. In order to walk into, in other words, in order to enter into the grace of Jesus, we have to stoop under a low gate is what he's saying. And the proud person can't stoop. He just can't even enter into the grace immeasurable that God has. He gives more grace. The proud man can't even receive it because he can't humble himself to enter the way that God requires. And so, here's what this, this tells us. There is forgiveness to be found for pride, but there is not forgiveness to be found in pride. We can... We can be forgiven for our pride, but we cannot be forgiven in our pride. Because if you, if you just remain, if, you are, if you're stubborn and steadfast in your pride and you remain there, you cannot enter into the forgiveness that he has. Hence, the alarming nature of the warning. We remain there, enemies of God. And so the good news is he tells us explicitly what we are to do. It's right there in the rest of verses six through 10, uh, a list of imperatives. The first being in verse uh, seven, I believe. It's really verses seven through 10, I suppose. Submit yourselves to God. He goes on to say, draw near to God. And then in verse 10, humble yourselves before God. Submit yourselves to God. Put yourself under his authority, under his command, in everything that he commands. It's not conditional. There's not a negotiation to be had. He is king and you are a subject of the king 
or you're an enemy of the king. And there, there isn't an in-between. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And as you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. As you humble yourself, he will exalt you. If you exalt yourself, he will oppose you. Submit yourselves to God. Number two, resist the devil, James says. The battle against sin is an ongoing battle, but, to, but be sure it is a battle. It is a struggle. We, we will never on this side of eternity arrive at a point where we just never feel like sinning. Or he's just like taking it all, all the temptation or anything away from us. It's a struggle. And when you resist the devil, it says he will flee, but no, he won't flee forever. I mean, I, that's probably bad news, but I mean, it's just the reality. He won't flee forever. The, the, the devil has an aggressive customer retention strategy. <laughs> and he is committed to it. He will be back with an enticing offer to keep you a client. You know, worldly desires are, are, are like, you know, wild dogs, like jackals or coyotes or something that just, they, they, they come and harass, they, they're, they're seeking to ravage the camp. They're gonna take the food, the small animals or whatever they can and, and, and you have to drive them off. But they will be back. They don't give up just because you scare them off. If you, if you get distracted, or if you fall asleep, they'll wait till the middle of the night when you're asleep and they will be back. Somebody's got to keep watch and somebody's got to keep driving them off. It is an ongoing battle. Because they'll always be at work. So submit to God, resist the devil. Number three, he says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. That is, repent outwardly and inwardly. We, there, there needs to be re repentance of outward actions, but also of inward attitudes of the heart. You know, some of you maybe grew up in a Christian tradition where worldliness meant movies, uh, drinking, smoking, wearing makeup. There might have been some other things on the list, gambling and, you know, whatever. But there was this list of those were, those were worldly things. And so if you didn't do those things, you were holy. Now, I've overstated it a little bit, but you know what I'm talking about. If you spent any time in your background in those circles, that's, that was the extent of worldliness and holiness, outward kind of things. But, you know, you can still be worldly without any makeup on <laughs> or without going to movies or whatever. You know, I, I, um, I worked at one time with a young woman who, uh, who was part of a church where the women uh, did not wear makeup. And again, it was out, sort of out of this uh, teaching. And so um, what she did instead was she went regularly to the tanning booth. 
And, um, and she's a delightful young woman. I'm certainly not making any statement about her, but it just illustrates something, right? In other words, the, the, the outward decision didn't do anything inwardly that was supposed to be what the real issue is about. And so James says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Number four, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. I think this is the part that may be some of the most difficult <laughs> uh, to embrace in all of this because we don't think of it as being this serious. We don't think of it as being this serious. But awareness of our pride and worldliness should cause us to grieve, to be wretched or miserable, I think another translation may read in there. How would you feel if you just discovered you had been complicit in the plot to betray Jesus? I mean, what if he came and, and revealed that and said, you're, you're not a friend, you're an enemy? I mean, that would be crushing, wouldn't it? That would be crushing. Consider Peter, who, who denied, he wasn't even an enemy or he didn't betray Jesus, right? He was right there on that night to lop off the ear of the soldier who came to take Jesus into custody. Faithful servant and sidekick, so to speak. But then in the midst of the trial, he denied him three times, right? As Jesus told him he would, he didn't believe it. And the rooster crowed and Jesus turned and looked at him. And Peter remembered what he said. And then, he, and then it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly at the revelation that he had just denied. Essentially, he had denied Jesus and essentially that, that, that somebody had said, hey, you're a friend of Jesus. And he said, oh, no, I'm not. And he wept bitterly over that. that that's, the, that's the sort of response that James tells us we ought to have. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Trade your, trade your laughter for mourning and your, and your joy for gloom because you have been an enemy of God. And finally, number five, it says in verses 11 and 12, don't judge or speak evil against your brother. The only way that you can judge your brother uh, or speak evil against in this, in this respect is from a place of pride, right? In other words, we, can, we not only can, but are supposed to, we're told in other places, um, call our brother back, our brother who has sinned either against us or somebody else to restore him. We don't want to just let somebody remain in their sin. We're supposed to call that out and draw them back into fellowship. But, but the speaking evil against that's referred to here, that sort of judgment we can only do from a position of pride. Who are you to judge? James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Submit to God, resist the devil and all those other things I said. Cleanse your hands and uh, purify your hearts. Be, be wretched, mourn, and weep. And don't judge or speak evil against your brother. 
Again, the really sobering, alarming reality is this, this finds us all out, doesn't it? I mean, there's, there really, if you wanted to talk about, you know, sinning every day and sin always be, being lurking at your door, uh, pride is probably at the front of the line waiting to draw, draw you into sin. Worldliness right on its heels. Always right there. And it calls for a, a response from us. Because, you know, this uh, warning for those in the fellowship, of course, there are those opposed to God who are just worldly through and through unbelievers who stand opposed to God by uh, choice and by nature and need themselves to be called to repentance. And the good news is that that's true of you this morning, that forgiveness is available and it's free. It, it, God has made peace by the blood of the cross of Christ. And all anybody has to do is receive it. But those in the fellowship to whom James would be writing here, there are some who are genuine believers who drift over the line and hear the rumble strip of this warning against worldliness and pride and need to correct course. That may be true for many of us this morning. Where there may be others in the fellowship who identify themselves as Christian and they just drive on the shoulder of the road all the time. They are outside of relationship with God. They are in the church, but they are not in Christ. And you understand, as James writes, this is part of his audience. Here, he's talking about, you know, there are, there's real faith and false faith, and not everybody who says they have faith really have faith. We've been going, we've been seeing that as we've gone through here. And, and, and somebody, though they, though they have been in the church for as long as they can remember, though they have served in the church, even if they've been officers in the church, even pastors, but have lived with a, a pride that they have never stooped to enter humbly into the grace of God in Christ, then they are still outside of Christ. They have not just wandered into enemy territory, they are an enemy of God. But again, no matter where we fall on that spectrum, the call to us in this message, in this word, is to submit to God, humble ourselves, be wretched and mourn and say, God, forgive me, cleanse me, I don't know of a more painful purifying that happens in the life of a Christian than to be, than for God to deal with this one right here. These, the, the rough edges of pride require a particularly uh, hard grindstone to smooth them down. But even at that, it is a gracious act of God to do that.
And so whatever, how, however that speaks um, to you and to me, it calls for a response uh, from us. And so as, as we conclude and pray, I'm gonna actually just ask uh, Dean if he'll come and, and just play um, just a little music on the, on the keyboard um, even before we have a concluding song. And um, let's just linger for a few minutes in, in private prayer uh, for just a couple of minutes even, just in private prayer and inviting God to speak maybe more clearly than what he's already spoken to your heart and mine and calling from us a response that we might be made right with him this morning. Would you bow with me and let's just spend some time privately in prayer. Father, even since we were little children, we have found it so hard to say, I'm sorry. And so we saw in ourselves from our earliest memories a pride that would war against us for our lifetime. something that would restrain us from humbling ourselves even when we knew that humility would give us access to the most wonderful gifts that we could receive. Even when we wanted human relationships made right again and that a simple gesture of honesty and humility would have taken us there, Lord, that we, we have found something in us that keeps us from there. So Lord, we know this all too well. Lord, where we see that in ourselves today, 
we ask you to purify our hearts. You've made peace by the blood of the cross. Would you bring us fully into that peace even this morning? Where maybe in in very recent interactions with other people, Lord, we have we've just dug our heels in in a prideful position. And we hear this morning the rumble of the warning of where that leads. Lord, forgive us, cleanse us, set us right this morning. God, would you speak to people even about steps they need to take to be reconciled with a spouse, a child, other family members, neighbors or friends, church members, whoever that might be, that there needs to be a phone call, a note, some acknowledgement, Lord. That maybe someone just needs to pay a compliment to somebody because they, in their pride, find it hard to watch that person be successful and to be celebrated for their success. Be gracious, Lord, to speak by your spirit, to lead us just a deeper relationship with you as we stoop humbly through that low gate that invites us into all the fullness of what we have in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you give more grace. We pray you'd give it to each one according to our need and your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen.